other side of midnight with Frank Morano. singing a sign of the times you know it is this lovely singer's 90th birthday today patula clark celebrating her 90th birthday i'll tell you i don't know um you know i don't know what patula clark's like these days but uh, i'll tell you if somebody if there's somebody that has had an incredible career as a recording artist and a singer it is Petula Clark. Hey, it's a sign of the times these days that um, one of the few things that Washington seems to agree upon is that um, the Ukrainians should be funded completely and that the Zelensky government should enjoy the full and complete support of the American taxpayer. And a lot of... Other folks have been saying, well, wait a minute, what if this leads us closer to nuclear war? A guy whose take on this and a bunch of other issues I am eager to get is Gil Barndoller. He's a senior research fellow at CSS and a senior fellow at Defense Priorities. And just in case you think uh, that's not sufficient enough qualifications, from the, he was also the director of Middle East Studies at the Center for the National Interest. He's written for the Wall Street Journal, the L.A. Times, you name it. He uh, previously served as an infantry officer in the United States Marine Corps, has been deployed to Afghanistan twice, and if that weren't enough, he has a Ph.D. in history from the University of Cambridge. Uh, Dr. Barndoller, thank you so much for joining me on the radio. Hey, thanks, Frank. Appreciate the kind introduction. Well, I appreciate you making some time for us. And uh, I know one of the issues that you've been researching and uh, working on a book about has been examining the all-volunteer military in America. And we have a lot of listeners who came of age at a time when the draft was something to be fearful of uh, because they didn't want to get their lottery number called, their draft number called, and end up in a war that they didn't necessarily believe in. One of the things that we've seen lately is that some people that may think that um, it's unwise to get involved in American conflicts, they've been talking about bringing back the draft uh, because the feeling is that maybe uh, the American military won't be so quick to uh, get into wars that are unpopular if their if their children are getting drafted as well. For instance, Charlie Rangel, who was formerly a prominent member of Congress from New York, he proposed this multiple times before he left office. The timing of my uh, draft uh, legislation was meant to coincide uh, with the president's uh, request for 21,000 additional troops. Um, it's abundantly clear that uh, we're not getting uh, these troops from uh, volunteers, <coughs> but rather 
uh, people who have already fulfilled their obligations are being asked to, being called back. <coughs> National Guard's people are being called back. And people who are already over there and expected to come home are going to be asked to stay there. Uh, clearly, uh, we are abusing uh, those people who have enlisted and signed up. That was obviously during the war in Iraq and the Bush administration. What has your research shown you, uh, Gil, about the efficacy of the all-volunteer military? And do folks like Wrangell and others who brought up the idea of bringing back the draft, do they, do they have some merit to their argument? Yeah, I think there's definitely some merit to the argument. I mean, I don't think it's, you know, we're not even beginning to have that conversation in any meaningful way as a country. And I think we're a long way off from that. Uh, but I think we're sitting here now next year, and you may be aware, it's going to be actually the 50-year anniversary of the end of the draft and the beginning of the all-volunteer force. And I should add that all-volunteer force is kind of a misnomer. It's really the all-recruited force, and that's, I think, that's a key distinction, uh, especially now as we're having a recruiting crisis. And that's that, you know, kind of rears its head episodically uh, over the last few decades, but we're in a particularly bad one right now. Um, but I think we have to look at the facts. The facts are that despite its uh, its capability and, and you know, the, no, no question the battlefield performance of the U.S. military, uh, our country is almost winless with a with a volunteer force. You know, if you don't count kind of small, you know, your Granadas and your Panamas and stuff like that, uh, we've won one, one real war by my count, Desert Storm, with, a, with a, an all-volunteer force, with an all-recruited military. Uh, and we've got a bunch of losses on the scoreboard, and I think that bears examination. So do you think um, that we should bring back the draft if our interest is winning military conflicts? Well, I think we've got – it's not quite that simple. I mean, I don't think we're going to go back. I don't think there's any cause or call for the U.S. to go back to a World War II-style draft where, where everybody or, or certainly every male is being drafted. Uh, but I think we've got some some big questions to face ahead of us, and I think there are even some things that are – you know, security challenges we face at the same time, let's let's be honest and look at a map. Like our country is incredibly geographically blessed. You know, there's no other no other power on earth and, and probably you'd struggle to find another great power, another superpower in, in in human history that was as blessed as the United States geographically, you know, being a country the size of a continent with just uh, you know, an ocean on, on either side and then a weak neighbor on the other two sides. So we're very secure in that sense, and that's a real thing, even in the age of, you know, intercontinental ballistic missiles and terrorism and other threats we're sometimes told or don't respect uh, boundaries. But um, all that being said, I think when you look at what's ahead of us, especially when you talk about climate change and disruptions, that's going to cause, um, you know, potentially real immigration crises that would outpace anything we're seeing now. We may need a lot more people in uniform in the decades to come. One of the other arguments that's always made for bringing back the draft or some sort of um, mandatory national service, because various proposals include alternatives to military service as well, is that it would be a fine character-building exercise for America's youth and how a lot of American youth come of age today never being called upon to sacrifice for the common good or for their country. Do you see anything to that? Yeah, I, I kind of do and I don't. I mean, my experience in, in the Marines was, was really positive in that regard. And I think it's, um, you you know, you've got your, your, your bottom 10% sometimes and, and your top 10% that are superstars too. But by and large, you just get a lot of really solid young people that I think are, are again, by and large, better off when they leave. Uh, but that's not the purpose of the institution, right? We have a military to fight wars and, and to win wars. Uh, and so I think if you're just creating it as 
especially military service. I think it's important to differentiate, as, as you kind of did, between a military draft and, and a broader kind of national service concept. Um, but I think if you're doing this as sort of a, a character-building exercise, you're going to kind of set up this, this sort of boondog one. I'm curious, I'm, I'm skeptical that that's hmm. really going to work. Um, I mean, I think one, one country that, you know, we hear a lot about in the news and, and people are concerned about going forward is Taiwan, which has this kind of vestigial military draft. It's only four months long. Uh, it's not taken very seriously. And if anything, it, my understanding is it creates a lot of, a lot of skepticism and hmm. a lot of uh, lack of regard for the military because it seems kind of a joke. Talking with uh, Dr. Gil Barndoller. He is a fellow with the with a great think tank called Defense Priorities, also a, a Marine veteran. Give me your take on uh, what we're seeing in Ukraine. I know you've spoken about this. You've written a bit about it. Tell me um, where, where where you see this conflict going and what you think America's place in it is. Yeah, well, I think it's I think it's pretty clear the Ukrainians are winning on the battlefield. You know, they 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 blunted most people, including I think uh, you know most folks in the U.S. government that were studying this issue in February thought the Russians were going to roll over them, were going to at least get us you know take take Kiev and, and overthrow the Ukrainian government um, and install some kind of proxy. And obviously that didn't happen. Uh, it may have been a closer run thing than we thought. The Ukrainians repulsed the Russians. You know, uh, fought their way through some, some, I think, months of heavy fighting and, and, and heavy casualties. We don't even really fully know those numbers. Uh, and then, and now we're on the certainly on the offensive. So, the fall of Kherson, I think, is a big deal. I think that the, I think the longer this goes on, the more on the battlefield it's going to favor the Ukrainians. This idea that the Russians are going to have these advantages in, in a long war, I think, is, is kind of this weird historical artifact. It doesn't stand up to a lot of scrutiny when you look at how much trouble they had just mobilizing 300,000 men to, to kind of fill the holes in the line and, and create a real, you know, prevent a collapse this winter. Uh, and then the problems they're going to have in terms of weapons, a lot of which they can't make most, a lot of the, a lot of the serious stuff they can't make without Western components that are all shut off by sanctions. So I think the Ukrainians are going are to keep kind of grinding forward with, you know, potentially a lower tempo during the winter. So where do you think America comes plays a role in this? Should we be doing what we've been doing and continuing to offer military aid, equipment, and money to the Zelensky government? Or is there some other strategy that we should be uh, seeking or implementing? Well, I think, you know, I think actually what the administration's done is, is broadly been the right course, although I think they've um, they've walked a very fine line, and I think it's a very it's a tough thing to do, right? We're not – I think we, we sort of are not used to being in this kind of proxy conflict and, and not used to a conflict where we have to stay hands-off for the sake of basic prudence and preventing escalation that could get really dangerous and, and you know, with the specter of kind of nuclear weapons in the background. Um, and I think we have to be careful in that regard in terms of how this war terminates. And there's there's more discussion now in the press and in Washington, I think, and certainly in the administration, about negotiations and about sort of what, what war termination looks like. And so I think that, uh, you know, broadly, I don't have a problem with us supporting the Ukrainians and, and spending what on the face of it looks like a lot of money. But when we look at what we're doing to the Russian military, I mean, we've, we've <laughs> mostly American weapons have caused probably something that will take them a decade plus to recover from and have really reduced if not almost eliminated the conventional Russian military threat to the rest of Europe. So that's a huge, that's a huge victory, especially since the Russians chose this war. Uh, but I think we need to be careful going forward in terms of where this takes us and not getting into a situation that, that escalates uh, and starts that spiral. 
I'm sure you've seen the uh, the coverage of ethnic Russians in eastern Ukraine, including in the Donbass region and in places like Crimea, who do seem much more comfortable, uh, not only culturally and linguistically, but politically being part of Russia rather than the rather than the Ukrainian government, which is a little bit more Western in all the respects that I just mentioned. Do you see a way in which those Eastern Ukrainians that may identify more with the Russians are able to be part of Russia while Western Ukraine gets to be a part of the West and the EU and so forth? Well, I, I mean, you know, that was a narrative certainly before the war in a lot of respects. There was probably more truth to it then. Um, I, I think that let's set Crimea aside for a minute. Cause I think that's kind of a special case. That was, for what it's worth, you know, historically that was always kind of part of Russia and was sort of transferred over to Ukraine and kind of a, uh, a political move in the 50s. Uh, and that's not to excuse the fact that Russians, you know, annexed it um, unilaterally and what they did in 2014. Um, but just that, that's kind of a different case in some ways. But the rest of Ukraine, I, I think it's, you know, yes, there are there are kind of breakdowns linguistically to some extent, although it, it, even that gets a little dicey. You know, Odessa is well into western Ukraine, is unequivocally a Ukrainian city, but has, uh, I think, a plurality of Russian speakers. And Zelensky's a, you know, a, a, a Russian a Russian speaker. So I think it's not quite that that tidy. And I think that Russia's war has alienated a lot of mm-hmm. Eastern Ukrainians and Russian-speaking Ukrainians who might have been better disposed towards Russia up until the you know this onslaught. So I think that picture's probably changed quite a bit in just the last you know uh, seven eight months of war. I were talking with uh, Gil Barndoller about the situation in Ukraine and uh, the kind of the global scene generally. Is there a danger? With the United States being on the side of the Ukrainians, with things continuing to escalate, is it better with the Ukrainians scoring these military victories, including in Kherson, which you just cited, to use this as an opportunity while the Russians are, um, you know, experiencing some setbacks to try to get a peaceful negotiated settlement and a ceasefire rather than continuing to aid the Ukrainian side? Well, I think we just, I think we need to be, be cautious and be careful about where the red lines are. And I, and I, you know, that's kind of a guessing game to some extent. There were people that would have told you three, four weeks ago, two months ago, that would have said that, you know, Kherson is a red line. If the Ukrainians come close to taking it, the Russians will employ tactical nuclear weapons. Obviously that, that, that didn't happen. And there was no, uh, certainly nothing out in the public sphere that that was even, you know, a serious possibility. Uh, people would now tell you that, that Crimea is, is potentially a Russian red line, and that strikes me as a lot more more plausible. Um, so I think that you know I understand the public stance the administration is taking, and I understand that they don't they want to leave no daylight between them and the Ukrainian government, um, and I get that. But I think we have to be clear that, as you're sort of alluding to, U.S. interests and Ukrainian interests are not one and the same, um, and and fundamentally our, our major interest in this war, as much as as good as it is to help the Ukrainians, as much as that's to America's advantage, uh, both morally and strategically in a lot of ways, that the, the number one priority is preventing a nuclear war with Russia, right? That doesn't mean we, we have to let them conquer Ukraine. Obviously, we didn't do that, but we have to have that in the back of our minds for sure. Where, where, how do you know where the red lines are, though? Well, I, that's, the, that's the tricky part, right, especially in a, in a regime like Russia's that, that already was pretty – Centralized, pretty, you know, totalitarian is a strong word, but a very centralized authoritarian state 
and, and pretty opaque before the war, and this has become much more so. You know, the, the limited Russian independent media, uh, the kind of regular intercourse between Russian policymakers and people in the West, all of that is, is, uh, has been reduced to a trickle. Um, so it's much more of a guessing game, and I think that, that should induce some caution. Uh, and, and Putin, you know, famously has walled himself off to a far greater degree, largely as a result of COVID. Uh, so I think there's, I think we need to kind of err on the side of caution with some of these things. But by the same token, um, you know, we, we were in this war as, as not, you know, as, as the arsenal of the Ukrainians. I think that does serve a lot of strategic purpose, but we need to be very careful going forward. Last, uh, sorry, lastly, you um, you referenced Taiwan. Obviously, President Biden is meeting this week with uh, President Xi of China. I'm sure Taiwan is very much on the uh, on the uh, one of the uh, discussion agenda items. And uh, there's been a lot of speculation that China may seek to invade Taiwan militarily, and we've heard a lot of conflicting messaging from President Biden and his spokespeople about what the American reaction would be. What do you think America should do if China went forward with a military invasion of Taiwan? Well, my view is we should do our best to prevent that from happening. And I think that we we should really be looking at deterring China by making, by making it a very uh, uncertain or dubious proposition for the Chinese. I mean, amphibious invasions are really, I think it's about one of the most complex things you can do militarily. And the Chinese uh, regime, the PRC, unlike unlike Putin's Russia, is not made up of gamblers. This has been a pretty, you know, small C conservative kind of government in terms of how it conducts its foreign affairs. Uh, they're not, I think, inclined to, to push this issue if they don't if they don't feel very assured of success. Hmm. Um, so I'm I'm uh, very kind of cautious about direct U.S. intervention in that conflict, although I don't think it's imminent. Um, and you know, the president said that just the other day after this meeting with Xi. But um, but I think the best thing we can do is help the Taiwanese, but they have to be willing to, to fight themselves. And as, as I kind of alluded to in discussing their manpower situation militarily, that's a bit of an open question, too, what the Taiwanese would do in the event of a war, particularly if they're blockaded and there's nobody coming to their aid immediately. Gil Barndollar, we're going to have to leave it there. I appreciate the conversation. I'll look forward to uh, chatting with you again soon. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thank you. If you want to comment on any portion of our conversation, you can give me a call, 1-800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.